that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola, joined today by the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle. And it is a few days ahead of a wonderful holiday that everybody, I'm sure, is looking forward to in Father's Day. Father's Day is a great opportunity to celebrate the papa, the nono, the father-in-law, the father figure, the, the men we love in our lives. And a few weeks ago when we were sitting down talking through our next couple of months of episodes and sort of doing some pre-planning with our team, Pat piped up and said he had a great concept for a Father's Day episode celebrating the love of an Italian-American father and a guest that he thought would just be a fantastic opportunity to bring together someone who is not only an accomplished author and publisher and thought leader in the field of children's literature, but is also a proud Italian-American who you have known for a very, very long time. And so uh, I'm really excited for the conversation today because the whole crux of being able to bring on Italian-Americans who have accomplished great things in their field is sort of based around the idea that you want those who are proud of their Italian-Americanness, who are aware of it, uh, and in many cases who are inspired by it. And I think, as you explained to me, the topic for today's show, uh, our upcoming guest is someone who was clearly inspired by not only her Italian-Americanness, but in particular by her Italian-American dad. So why don't I turn over to you and, and give you the opportunity to introduce our guest to the audience, someone who I know you are not only proud of for their amazing accomplishments, but uh, who you clearly love so much and uh, have shared so much with over the many, many years that you've known one another. We have an absolutely stellar guest on today. This is on the top rated stellar guest that we could possibly have on. We have Michelle Cerullo McAvoy, who I can happily say has been a friend since I was 14 years old, 1989. Maybe I'm giving away our ages with this. Oh my gosh, bad. It is what it is. We we don't look that. If they visually see us, they would think we were like in our mid-20s, which is just more edifies, um, just is more edifying to think that. But Michelle, I, I went to high school with Michelle, and I have been adamant with John and our production staff that we had to have Michelle on for Father's Day because I do not know anyone who did a more beautiful tribute to her late father than Michelle. And I thought that it touched so closely to what we share as a community, right? What our feelings toward family is, Mm -hmm. to lineage in the sense of connecting children with grandchildren. You know, John, we've said so often here that so much of us who feel so passionate about this identity to be Italian-American is because we had grandparents. We grew up with grandparents, multi-generational families, multi-generational homes. And the challenge happens with how do you tell your children about a parent who passed? How do you communicate to them the love, the experiences of a father, a mother, a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, even a sibling that's passed before they were born or before they could have real memories? 
people can see a video, you know, videotapes in the past or movies or pictures, but there's that disconnect because you knew them intimately in life, right? And you know that there's so much of who you are. And because there's so much of who you are, there's so much of who your children, who your descendants are. And you want to make that connection. But the challenge is when they're past, how do you make that connection? And specifically for small children, um, when you start to begin, when they begin to ask questions like, well, mommy, where's your daddy? Or mommy, where's your mommy? And you have to say, well, my daddy's not here anymore. So, you know, there's 12 or 13 years between my brother and I, depending on how, what time of year it is. And I remember about the time, maybe it was about four or five, and he said to me, what happens when we die? Hmm. Right? It was the first cognizant idea about what, what happens when you die. What is death? And I remember as a teenager trying to explain to him what death is, right? Because it's something children have to realize at one point in their life, right? Some of us had Italian families back in the 1970s. I spent my whole childhood in funeral parlors. Mm -hmm. That's why I get freaked out with the smell of carnations, right? Every time I smell flowers, there was a dead body involved, <laughs> right? My grandmother, every single solitary wake, it'd sit there while they would check out how the body looked or how much they spent on the caskets or who went cheap on flowers. So I never, I never had a fear of death. I was surrounded by death my whole childhood. <laughs> the world has changed a lot. And now, you know, there's some people in their 20s who've never seen a dead body, wow. right? Yeah. So handling death in adulthood and childhood, they're all challenged this, but specifically hard because every child has to be confronted with that first notion of death, that first notion of disconnect from people. And I brought Michelle on because Michelle is an attorney by profession. She's a child uh, author, child book author as well. And I thought she did such an incredible job of this. And she really brought to light the love she had for her father, for her children, that I wanted to bring her on because not only just to celebrate Michelle, right, as a gold star in the Italian-American universe, but also to offer her books as vehicles for people who might be going through that right now. How do I explain to my kids about daddy dying or daddy's very sick or daddy may not make it to Christmas or I want them to learn about my parents who are no longer with us. And I think Michelle has created the perfect vehicle and that's why I had her on today. Well, let me let me say, you know, sometimes when you bring guests on, you know, we, we all five of us do sort of contribute our own wish list of guests. And, you know, sometimes I feel like when you bring guests on that are people that you've interacted with and, you know, or you've grown up around or you've worked with or whatever it is, you're so enthusiastic about sharing your personal relationship with them that we often undersell their professional accomplishments. So I just want to say for the audience, Michelle is not only a, a, a trained lawyer, but really a motivational, inspirational speaker and an award-winning children's book author. She's got multiple children's books that she's published. She's the owner and publisher at the Little Press and Blue Bronco Books, which is a traditional children's book publisher out in the great state of New Jersey. It specializes in books to promote social and emotional welfare of young people, which I think is so super important. And interestingly enough, Michelle's also the host of My Messy Muse, which is a podcast that seeks to inspire listeners along their own kids' literature journeys through interviews with authors, illustrators, agents, editors, and everybody gets a chance to sort of share their personal struggles. So I think it's important that I, as the outsider, can reference Michelle's amazing accomplishments in such an interesting field. And uh, it's nice to have a fellow podcaster on. So that's great. And I hope everybody uh, who's listening to this goes out and listens to Michelle's My Messy Muse podcast as well. So I want to make sure that the audience knows your professional accomplishments as much as the personal impression that you and throughout your life and now your work have left on, uh, on our co-host Pat here. Ah, well, thank you. I don't even know how to follow all of this, all of these ones, this wonderful introduction and accolades. It's, it's actually really humbling. I, uh, 
I am, I'm an attorney. I've practiced as an attorney for 20 years. I just recently kind of hung up my shingle a little bit. I'm now a reading specialist at a charter school in Jersey City. So I bring literacy to underserved communities and struggling scholars. I started my own traditional publishing company during the pandemic. I just hit send on my, on my announcement. It was something that I always wanted to do. And what better time to do it than during a global pandemic when <laughs> bookstores were closing. But you know what? I think I always enjoy a challenge. And I, I if, if Pat knows me well, I'm not one to um, sort of shirk away from what I really want to do in life. And I just, I have a passion around literacy and I have a passion around books for a special reason um, is that I really do believe that books are are magical and I know it sounds so super hokey but books can be all things for all people right so it could be an escape it could be a vehicle to learn and just in, improve yourself it could be so many things and particularly for children it's very important for them in, in, in those many different respects you can learn about other cultures other communities so I believe in the power of books for me, and Pat had touched upon my first book, My Superhero Grandpa, that was my sort of my introduction into the children's book world and into the community. And it really was a vehicle to help me personally deal with the loss of my father. I lost my dad tragically when I was 26. Um, and it was really, really difficult for me. And I used to write really dark back then. Um, and then I had my own children and my writing started to become very light and colorful, but also I had my own children and my son, but they would never get to meet their grandpa and it broke my heart. Um, so I thought what better way than to make their grandpa a superhero, right? It's really hard to explain to children, especially young children, um, angels and, you know, what you believe in, in terms of heaven, you know? And so I said, you know what? An angel is very much like a superhero, right? Angels, they fly around as a kid, right? They fly around, they're there to help you. So I said, you know what? I'm going to make my dad the coolest dad. Um, I'm going to make him a superhero. So um, that's what I did with my superhero grandpa book. And it honors my dad, but it really, it honors him not only on the page, but also in sort of following my passion. My dad was very much about, you know, Michelle, you could do and be anything you want to be. And I'm sure all of you sort of appreciate that sentiment from your own Italian fathers, right? If you work hard, you could do anything, right? You put your mind to it, you could do anything. You put in the work um, and follow your passion. And so um, it honors my dad just to continue on my journey in the book industry, to continue writing, to continue creating in so many ways, so many ways. I mean, I don't have the luxury of having known you this long. So for me and for the audience, tell us a little bit about your dad. Wow. Okay. So my dad, oh, he's so good. Um, he, let's see, he grew up in the West Village in Greenwich Village in New York, um, in the Italian neighborhood down by Bleecker Street. He worked in construction as a young man. He actually helped build the Twin Towers wow. and then moved out to New Jersey, which a lot of them did. They like basically called it the country back then. So they moved from the city, a whole bunch of them. Um, so they live in my neighborhood or in the in the neighboring towns, uh, cousins and aunts and uncles. They moved out to New Jersey and then he um, went into the textile industry. He owned his own textile company. He was just such a great person. He was smart. He was kind. Um, you know, Pat had said, you know, 
Italian dads are very much a cornerstone of the family. He, he was our bedrock. He was funny. You know, all of the amazing qualities that you would want in a dad, that's who he was. He was extremely dynamic and he always encouraged me to do what I wanted to do in my heart. But, you know, grades were always first, right, Pat? Like yeah. school always came first. Your education came first because he would always say, Michelle, nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can take away your diplomas. Nobody can take away uh, your education. So he didn't graduate college. I was the first one. I graduated college and obviously law school. So to answer your question, he was pretty amazing, amazing person. And so you, you obviously lost your dad young and uh, you had kids. How many kids do you have? So I have two children. I have a boy who is now, he just turned 12 and I have a daughter who's nine. So I have two kids. And you really wrote the book to share with them the story of your dad, the, the idea of passing on family. I'm assuming now with kids that are, you know, uh, I guess preteens, they'd be considered, right? Oh gosh, um, don't, don't say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we all got to fess up to what we are at some point, yeah. right? Uh, we're no longer in the youth committees anymore. Uh, right. What well, is... we look as <laughs> yeah, if yeah. we should be. Sure, sure. Let's just amend that. Yes. So Everybody... we, the QP to people on this, well, I'm not, John, you're younger, but we look as if we should be. I just want that duly noted. Yes, I, noted. Everybody looks great. It's a very handsome Fantastic. phone call. We look but... like we're 15. You can think we're still back in high school. But tell me, um, what has it been like trying to pass along culture and tradition and things like that to the kids? I mean, uh, what are the mechanisms you're using? Have you found it in this, you know, 21st century? It's not the easiest thing in the world to do to, to keep sort of family traditions. And what are you doing to keep your kids aware of their heritage? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, the honest answer is I don't even know if I do enough. And I feel like growing up in the environment that we grew up in, um, we were so surrounded by family. My grandmother, you know, there was macaroni dinner every Sunday. You know, there were just so many traditions. I feel like when you lose a central person to your family, sometimes you lose a lot of um, the typical traditions that you would do. It takes a lot of effort to keep them going, unfortunately. So for us, what I try to do is I try to spend and see my family as much as I can. I only live a few blocks from my mom. My kids go there a lot. We just had macaroni dinner yesterday. It was my son's birthday. And I said, you could go anywhere you want. You can go anywhere you want for dinner. I'll take you out for steaks. He says, I want to go to grandma's house for macaroni. And, Bravo. you know, like he's, he's, Bravo, you did the job. You've, you've done the job. Yep. yep you, you did well. Yep. And let me tell you, that is the greatest testament because I am a professional Italian American. That is what I do for a living. I focus on our culture. And it was not many years ago, my wife and I, my family, everybody was, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 30s, so you don't do much for your birthday. But my wife said to me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, you know what I'd like? I'd like to have a long stay at my grandparents' house, like I used to do when I was a kid. They live up in the mountains. I want to go. I want to have my grandmother's food. I want to go outside and pick strawberries and raspberries from their you know they have wild raspberries and stuff and that those are the things that matter and so for your son to be able to identify that at a young age i'm very impressed and congratulations on that i can't see nicole picking berries she did she did all right she tried <laughs> she really i really yeah, can't yeah. say <laughs> she was a trooper i'm sure yeah, she, you know she's abrut says my wife so she's got yeah. that mountain you know you should see her pick cocky fruit with her father he makes her pick everything she's up in the trees she's climbing she's just pretty good yeah i could see that <laughs> I gotta say, she's got that mountain lady in her. She knows. 
<laughs> See, but I feel like, at least for us, you know, the farther you get away from, you know, the older generation, it's harder. It was just a part of our lives back then. You just, you know, you, you just did it. It was just part of the routine. Now we're so caught up in, you know, how many baseball games we have. We have to go to soccer. We have to go here. Our days are so filled that you forget to slow down. Like you said, go to the mountains, pick some berries, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, go to grandma's house and sit and have a macaroni dinner and just relax you don't have to always be you know at the biggest latest greatest restaurant so yeah so i mean i try to do i try to spend as much family time and make sure that we we value that family time even with cousins and my brother and things like that so that's what i try to do to sort of keep the traditions going this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I, I always think back to like when I was a kid, my mom used to make us watch this Shirley Temple movie called The Bluebird. It was like a knockoff of... The Wizard of Oz, I guess. And there was a scene where her and her little brother are on these adventures through fantasy lands and things. And one adventure takes them to, I guess, heaven. And they're, they're able to see their grandparents. And everybody in heaven is asleep. And they only wake up when somebody on earth reminisces about them, talks about them, thinks about them, prays to them, whatever. And so this very emotional scene and the grandparents wake up and they play with the kids. And I think in in a very real terrestrial way we also forget that you know we rush through our lives and we say oh we want to keep these traditions alive for us and we want to pass them on to the next generation and there's all this focus on the next generation but it's also honoring our parents and our grandparents when we make that decision to prioritize them in our time because i think you know my parents are very active and they're back and forth between here and florida and they've got their own things but at the same time i know that it means the world to my mom when we all like sort of fight for the opportunity to get there on a Sunday and have macaroni and, and they light up when the grandkids are there. So, you know, we think about so much about pushing the culture forward, but we often don't think about honoring our parents and our grandparents. You can't push culture. No, you can't. It has to evolve organically. Yeah. Right. Because you can't stop the progression of time. Like things just change. The world changes. Right. And organically, certain things are going to transmit. And the fact that Michelle's son could have gone anywhere, but wanted to go to his grandmother's, right? You can't force that on a kid, right? Yeah. That happens because you've created the atmosphere where those bonds have formed. Yeah. You know, and that takes time. That takes time. That takes investment. Like if Michelle didn't live within walking distance of her mother, you know, if her mother lived halfway across the country and now we're going to go see grandma once a year for two weeks. And, and sometimes it happens in life. You know, we're all the products of people who came to America and never saw their parents again. But when you're disconnected and your brother's in one state and your mother's halfway across the country, and it's very hard for your children to really get to know their grandparents because you have to know them every day. You have to have that interconnectedness that makes them family. If you take the Italian, the, the village, right? You take the Baez system. You lived within, if not in the same house with your elders, you lived one or two houses away and that's how history was transmitted. That's how folklore was transmitted. You know, we're only in a, an illiterate age, maybe, especially in Italy, maybe since the 30s. You could really say Italy had massive literacy, right? 
But if you go back 100 years before then, the 1850s, 1860s, the chances were you were not going to be literate, right? Especially women were not literate. Sometimes you only had one child. You could have maybe had 10 children and the family picked the kid that had the most potential and, and, and sent them to learn how to read and write. So books were not our instrument of transmission, right? I knew a guy from Italy. He told me that before his village in Molise got electricity in the 30s, they had no electric lights at night and they had no radio. So he said, what did we do all night? The whole family sat around the fire because a lot of nights were very, very cold. And that fire was the only thing that kept you warm. And his grandparents would tell old stories or reminiscences of their childhood. And that's how he learned. And then he said, when electricity came to our town, we got an electric light and we got a radio. And it went from the family discussion of, of recounting stories and talking and interacting to everybody was listening to the radio. And the reason I, I think that we're the connectedness, if you take like the Odyssey, right? The ancient Greeks, the book was unknown. Stories were memorized, right? And how could you memorize the Odyssey? Because you heard it over and over and over and over again. How could illiterate people memorize books? Because it was the vehicle of hearing, the auricular vehicle that gave them those stories that they could share, right? And the ancient Greeks, if you go back, a lot of them were very scared when books came out because they said, well, if we have books, we won't need to recount these things anymore and people won't memorize them. But Michelle is like, she took a modern, and it really is modern, a book for children, right? That's really unheard of for a mass audience 150 years ago. Michelle takes a book and uses that book as a vehicle to transfer that story to her children and her children's children. And one day when we're not here, the descendants of Michelle will know about her father through that book. And that's why I think like, you know, um, now with technology, you can, you can record stories for the family. You can find your 102-year-old aunt who can tell stories that can be recorded. You know, I was born into, in the world of Super 8 uh, movies. And I have a uh, movies when I was baptized in 1975, March 16th, it was the day before St. Patrick's Day. I have my video of the party they had after I was christened. And I said, I wish these people could talk because I knew so many of them. Now, I think we're always looking to build that bridge from one generation to the other. But Michelle, let me ask you this question. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of feedback from people who've purchased your book and read it to their children. What have people shared with you how your book has helped them explain their parents or other family members who have passed to their own children? You know, Pat, I'll tell you, um, during COVID, so my book was did pretty well pre-COVID, but during COVID, it just really skyrocketed the sales for my superhero grandpa because there's been such a tremendous loss, particularly in the, I think in the grandparent community with the sickness. So it's really, it's been doing very, very well over the past year. And, you know, it, it's weird. It, it, it does warm my heart just to know that it's there. It is helping. I know that's so hokey and it all sounds all hokey, but it's just, it's out there in the world. And not only visually, you know, yes, it's a story about my dad, but it's now just, it was a story about my dad to help my kids and help introduce him. But it's just become something much bigger. And I think, you know, to your point with books, they just take a life of their own, right? And books are so much bigger than what they are physically and just the power of a story and the power of connecting. So people are just saying that, you know, thank you for your, your book. It's really helped me talk about the loss of a grandparent. A lot of times kids don't talk about it, right? Especially when the parents are suffering, right? So God forbid you lose your mother or father, you as an adult, you suffer 
the children see you suffering. So maybe they don't want to talk to mom and dad about it because they know that you're sad, right? So it really is a vehicle to just help kids to just chat, you know, whenever they are comfortable with chatting. And it also helps the parent to bring up the conversation too, because sometimes it could be, it's not easy. Um, so yeah, I think it's just helpful to start a conversation. It's not going to heal anybody. It's not going to end the sadness necessarily, but it's really just a vehicle to help have that connection and help help the conversation with a little one. I think that's so important. And I think you're right. You don't see grief as a multi-generational thing. Everybody tends to see their own and sort of try to survive it. And I think having a tool like that is, um, it's obviously a work of love for you based on your dedication to family and, and your dad and your kids, but also for other people out there. And you know, I like that you describe yourself as a traditional children's book author. These are topics that are, you know, it's great to write any kind of literature, especially for kids, but something that's got a sort of public service aspect to it. You've got obviously a clear mission here in this, and uh, it's a, there's a social service aspect to it. Mm-hmm. What's the mantra and mission behind the other works that you've got that you've published that, uh, is, there, is there a unifying theme or... Um, is there, is there a different message to these? That's a great question. So I have my own published stories. And then I also have my publishing company, which are two different things. So some of my other books are published with other publishers, right? And so my superhero grandpa and the gorilla picked me are two books that are with my publishing company now. Um, the gorilla picked me was published with a different one. And now it's with my publishing company. That is a story of something that happened when I was a little girl with my father, actually, when I was a little girl, I was not one that stood out. I was shy. I was a little bit chubby. Um, and I was never one to get picked from the crowd. And one day at a dance, like a girl scout dance, a brownie dance, I was with my dad and, um, he said, honey, I'll be right back. And I said, okay, dad. And he left. And I was sitting there in the cafeteria in my grammar school by myself, you know, not by myself, but my dad was gone. And in came a a person dressed up in a black gorilla costume and dancing around. And um, out of all of the people in the cafeteria at the daddy daughter dance, this big gorilla picked me up and swung me around and I felt elated in that moment. I was never the little girl to get picked from the crowd. And I was like, oh my God, it was my moment. And then he put me down and he waved to the crowd and he left. And I remember the feeling to this day as a grown woman, how I felt. And I never found out if it was him in that gorilla costume. Um, He passed away and I never knew his secret. And it's his forever secret. But I did write a book, The Gorilla Picked Me, and it's very much inspired by that. It's a little girl who, um, her name is Olive, and she's shy, and she never gets picked from the crowd until she's picked to dance by the dancing gorilla. And so, again, like, I feel like he inspires so much that so many things that I do, both professionally as an attorney, as as a writer, he just inspires so much, as you know, and people are just such a big part of who you are, you can't get away from it. So when people do pass, like there's this really heavy sadness. I mean, it's, the grief is so real and you feel broken. You really do, especially like my father, he was shot and killed when I was 26. So it was very tragic. So it was like ripped. He was ripped from my life. Right. But they don't ever really leave you. And I think that's just so important. Like all of these stories start to surface 
and these characters come to be and he's just so much a part of them because he's so much a part of me. So the gorilla picked me is, um, so that is really for children who maybe need a boost or self-esteem boost, especially in nowadays with social media and who gets the most likes and who, you know, who has the most followers, like the stress of being popular yeah. is so superficial and real for young girls these days. So the gorilla pick me is very much a story for that. I have um, Buckingham gets a new shell. It's a great summer book that has to do with a hermit crab, but it has more to it than just a hermit crab. Um, and then cookie and milk is a story about two little girls that are nothing alike, but are best friends. And I'll tell you just quickly about that. Cookie is a little black girl and milk is a little white girl. It's inspired by my relationship with my best friend, Wasi. And I'll just tell you quickly to um, talk about my father's character. You know, Wasi was having trouble getting an interview at, um, at somewhere down at our shore house. She was staying for the summer. And my father said, she came back home and she said they wouldn't give me the interview. And he's like, what do you mean? They didn't give you an interview. And she said, well, I went there. And then the guy said, sorry, I can't interview you, right? So we're talking about that on the Jersey Shore. And my father said, well, that's not okay. So he walked down to the store where she was supposed to have an interview and said to the manager, my daughter's here for an interview and you're going to give her an interview. And it was clear, like, she's a little black girl and he's a white Italian guy. And, you know, and that was it. Family was family. She was part of her family and he was going to fight for her no matter what. And she ended up getting the job, needless to say. So, you know, sometimes there's friendships that are more like family. And that's what Cookie and Milk is very much about. It's a sisterhood. And that's inspired by my real life as well. So um, that's wonderful. I mean, first and foremost, the fact that you can take uh, stock of those lessons that you pick up in your own stories. I mean, sometimes it's hard to see your life almost from the outside and see where there are valuable fables and where there are valuable lessons to be had and, and to then turn them into literature and to then focus them and, uh, and create something that's accessible to people is absolutely admirable. But I, I also think you're completely right. You know, again, our sense as a, as a people, our sense as a, of, as a community of inclusiveness. Intrinsic justice. Yeah. But we also are people of intrinsic justice. Yeah. Justice, justice and inclusiveness. I, I fairness and the, um, I want to get the right word. The honor of family, of being family. Like we used to use a slogan that I stumbled upon when I was at NIAF. And we used to say, you know, when you share genetics, you're related. But when you share values, you're a family. And I always get a kick out of, you know, if you follow the Italian American meme pages out there, it's like, who's got five cousins that aren't their cousins or uncles. That, and I find even with other Italians, I, I default to explaining who's really related. That's like my uncle. Well, he's not really my uncle. He's my godfather. Or he's this, or that. But like, in fact, you don't have to explain those things because family is about sharing values and family is about sharing love. And, you know, we throw around the word familia a lot, but when I use it, I'm always very sort of cautious about the idea that it's a, it's an honor to, to share that with somebody. And uh, it, it sounds to me like the idea of a book about that kind of sisterhood and friendship that crosses ethnic lines and, redefines both the participants as one that's needed more than ever today. So I'm, I'm sure that book has been well received as well. But think of the highest honor we give a friend. It's to baptize our child mm -hmm. as a culture, right? The term Gumbara is the godfather, right? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, Mario Puzo's movie hijacked the term godfather 
because they didn't have the right terminology to be able to articulate Don, right? Because Don was the real title, right? Right. So they just took Godfather because it kind of, they made it work. Yeah. But Goombat is the real title. And and people, you know, Goombat has been like a bastardized word now of uh, people don't really know, oh, he's a Goombat. But we've Jersey shortified ourselves as a culture. (laughs) But if you go back to the intrinsic roots of it, people asked other people, family, friends, to be the godparent for their child because A, it was the highest possible honor. And B, it also said, if something happens to me, look after this kid. It was a security system. Yeah. If we starve in a plague or if Saracen pirates kill us, make sure you look after this little baby, right? And so calling someone Gumbada was, was the extended family. Because once you had brought someone in to be the godfather to your child, that was as good as blood. That was a total integration of a person that you didn't share consanguinity with. Yeah. You shared values with, love with, soul with. And you brought them into that family. And that was the framework. That was the brick and mortar of the house that was the family. So even when we dubbed people an uncle, right? That, the uncle, the uncle, Uncle Frankie term, that the, the using uncle for that Gumbada, right? Because people didn't understand that. So now you don't call him Gumbada Juana, Gumbada Francisco. Now it becomes Uncle Johnny, Uncle Frank. It's the same thing of saying that we are the same family, even though we don't have the same consequences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that little girl, it didn't matter that her melanin, her skin wasn't different. Right. Because of her relationship to Michelle, she was a sister to Michelle. She was a friend to Michelle. Now she's under our protection. Right. So, you know, mafia movies, I say all the time that the intricacies of the Italian family had to be portrayed in mafia movies because that's what sold. But if you look at the Sopranos, you look at the Godfather, it's the really the story of a fa- it's really the story of a family, right? Yeah. And you need blood and murder and hits and all that stuff to make it sell in Hollywood, right? But if you go to Godfather 2, what's the most beautiful moment? The entire series of the Godfather. When Vito tells his son, Michael, I love you very, very much. When they're sitting on the stoop after he takes out, was it Ferrucci? Don Ferrucci, right? Yeah. Why does he take Ferrucci out? To protect his family. Yeah. His entire life, everything he did, even criminally, if you take his mother, right? You talk about loss. Um, Vito Corleone loses his mother. His mother sacrificed herself for her children. She dies so her children can escape and not lose their life. And he's constantly carrying the baggage of how do I protect my family? How do I protect my children? Because the Italian father is the protector, right? He, he holds over the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The cape, the mantle of protection, right? So here's Michelle's father saying, you're not my daughter, but you're around the house so much, you might as well be, and I'm going to make sure you're treated fairly. And, you know, that portrayal of us, I, don't, I think, is lost so often in American culture because we are a very loving, open people in that sense. Oh, yeah. And to your point, Wasi is my daughter's godmother. So, exactly. I mean, it's... And, I, and we did not know that. That's not <laughs> a setup. You didn't know that. I did not know that. She is my, um, my daughter's godmother. So, and, and again, and my kids say to me now, too, uncles, aunts, blah, blah, blah. They always say, wait, they... Is it a fake uncle or a fake aunt? Because <laughs> they're on, they're now on to the fact that not every aunt and uncle is a blood aunt and uncle. And I say to them, it's not a matter of being fake or real. I said, because some of our fake aunt and uncles we're closer with because they're there for us. They're there for us when we need them. Yeah. Whereas maybe some of us, you know, back in the day, we all lived geographically so close together, but now that's not possible, right? So you have aunts, uncles, cousins that don't live in the town right next to you or down the block. So a lot of those fake aunt and uncles are like your family. So yeah, so just the extended family part is another sort of cultural, I think, aspect that we continue 
you know, my kids have lots of aunts and uncles, <laughs> like you said, not all of them blood related. Your favorite entertainment made in Italy. Media said Italia has new dramas, addictive quiz shows, and the hottest reality TV this spring. Tune in for new seasons of Italy's favorite talent competition, Amici, the fastest quiz show around, Avanti Un Altro, celebrities marooned on an island in L'Isola dei Famosi, and don't miss new dramas airing Wednesdays starring your favorite Italian talents. DirecTV has the Italian TV you love. Get Media Set Italia for $10 a month plus taxes or Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. Visit directtv.com slash mediaset or call 1-877-912-2702 to learn more and subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. All programming subject to change. For new customers, equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details. Michelle, let me ask you a question. What inspired you to go out and form your own publishing house? Um, you know, I like I said, I really do believe in the power of books. I saw other publishers doing it. And, you know, as an attorney for 20 years and just being in the business and doing it on my own to doing my own books, my superhero grandpa was self-published, was my first book that I did and it was self-published. It wasn't published by another company. I said, not only can I do this, but I want to give, I want to do it. I want to make beautiful books that are important for kids. I want to support other creatives to help them on their creative journey and to find that it's not easy to get published, especially traditionally published. It's actually very, very difficult to find a publisher that will pick you up and invest in you and pay for your book and all that. So I wanted to be able to help others sort of find their dreams too. So, um, and I, you know, my father was an entrepreneur. My father had his own company. He was in the, like I said, in the textile printing industry. So I grew up with that around the table, right? Always talk and shop. And there's something about having your own business that always that I was always drawn to um so this was this was my time have you found a lot of like-minded authors have there been more or less sort of mission-driven authors than you expected oh wow so I find that most authors most writers are extremely mission-driven in fact you know, unless you're the JK Rowling or like a Dave Kilke who did like Dogman and things like that like you're not making a lot of money from books. You're not making a lot of money from your own books. People write and they do it because they love it. And because they have a story, just like I had a story I wanted to tell and give, it's the same way for them. So I would say more often than not, especially in the children's literature, 90% of it is mission driven, right? Some of them, people just pour their heart and soul into a story and they may not make any money doing it so i think it's it's very much for the craft so what's your next book oh what's my next book so my my most recent book came out in this past march and that's buckingham gets a new shell i have a couple things on submission uh, which that means that my agent is shopping them around to other publishers to pick up but right now i'm writing a middle grade novel about body image and, you know, sort of, I think in growing up, you know, being more like chubby or fat, like back in the day. Right. <laughs> um, and so I have a, a, a middle grade novel that I'm writing 
um, about that, that hopefully will be ready for submission end of this year. That's excellent. That's, I mean, it's, there's so many wonderful topics and, you know, we talk about that on the show a lot because we try to thread the needle between shows that are, you know, Italian American topic driven or interesting topics with Italian Americans. You know, we had a gentleman on a few weeks ago who's leading an amazing initiative around wellness and living spaces. And sometimes we talk just about a, a chapter out of history. And, and one of the shows that I know Roselle has been working on is an idea around body image and the Italian American psychology and Italian American culture and things like that. And I think, you know, not every show is for every audience member. And some listeners really love just learning about Italian American history or an interesting kind of topic. And I think others really appreciate looking at the ups and downs of the world and the struggles that we go through or the challenges that we face from an Italian American lens. And so I admire the fact that you can find in your Italian American experience so many ways to address these issues because it's important and especially for kids. It's really, it, it always comes out. Yeah. It, and that was my argument when we were kind of formulating this aspect of the podcast is that even if you're a children's book author, you're still an Italian-American children's book author because you, those roots are, are in you. And so many Italian-Americans, you know, Tommy DiPaola, Dan Yaccarino, there's been so many Italian-American children's book authors. You know Dan, Michelle, am I correct? I, I don't know him personally. We are a society that adores children. Yeah. You know, when we went out to eat, we always brought the kids with us, right? Yeah. The family was the root and the children were the center. And I think that if you have a children's book author, that aspect of who we are is going to come through, even if the name doesn't sound Italian, even if you block out the name, it's intr so intrinsic to who we are, it can't be masked. And I think that, you know, if we have someone who talks about natural lighting or holistic, no matter what they are, if they come on with a subject that prima facie on its face does not appear to be Italian-American, you get through the weeds a little bit, you scratch off the surface, it's there. I think that you can always feel the passion. I think that's what comes from Italian Americans, right? So we are extremely passionate about, like you said, our family. But I think we, when we find something that we're driven about, we're extremely passionate about it. And the other Italian American children's book authors that you talked about, you know, they're not only well known, but they're, um, you know, they're successful. They're successful. And I almost feel like, listen, not everything is going to be successful. We're not always going to be successful. Who knows? My publishing company just opened up its doors. You know, we had our first release a couple months ago. It may or may not be successful. Two years from now, you may say, oh, Michelle, I'm so sorry. That little press, <laughs> it didn't do so well. But you know what? I'm going to tell you this. We're passionate about it and we're going to give it our dandest, our hardest. We're going to work as hard as we can. And I feel like that is I feel like that's a central theme, right? No matter what, I'm not going to let you stand in my way. And maybe opening up a publishing company during a pandemic when bookstores are closing is not the best time, but I'm passionate about it and I'm going to make this happen. And I think that's sort of the common thread that you can always get. Probably every guest that you've had on, no matter what they're talking about, I'm sure <laughs> that they're extremely passionate about it and they probably get you pumped about, you know, whatever, wellness in the home. Yes, tomorrow I'm going to go out and I'm going to eat clean all day, you know, but like, so I think that's a common, I think that's a commonality of our culture, which I'm very proud of. And I hope that we can, my husband's Italian as well. I hope that we can instill that in our children, you know. If you take what Michelle said, right, 68% of the world, UNESCO World Heritage Sites is in Italy. Am I correct? 
57. 57? 50, 50, the last time I remember. Uh-huh. Was, 50, I'll take 57. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll take 57. And she's 100% right because that's why there's a Sistine Chapel. That's why there's a Gates of Paradise in Florence, right? Naples has 10 times more than all of them put together, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> because Italians have that intrinsic passion for art. Yeah. yeah. And a communicative art that builds a bridge. And it's a useful art, right? Because if you go to Florence, the baptistry of the doors of the Florence Cathedral has the Gates of Paradise, the beautiful bronze doors that were made. Mm-hmm. So I have a vehicle, but I'm going to make it the most beautiful vehicle. And Michelle has a book, but it's a beautiful book. The illustrations are beautiful. The message is beautiful. It all comes together and it, it serves a vehicle. The just way like the gates of paradise open up to allow a person to go from the outside to the inside of the baptistry. Michelle's book is a, it's a bridge, right? That brings a child across time and space, right? Across the rupture that is death to encounter, to meet their grandparent. I mean, how much more time can you possibly get? Not much. Pat, you just you just compared my book to the beautiful, it is. the beautiful <laughs> doors of the baptistry, and, and like, listen, I'll take it. I will take it. <laughs> I appreciate it. But yes, I agree that you know what I think. Um, there's many of us, many of us Italians that are extremely creative. Sometimes we get caught up in the acad- academics and academia because we also are very smart <laughs> as a people. I feel like. And sometimes we think, oh, we can't be creative because like I was before, I'm an attorney. I have to, I have to get good grades. You know, I, I have to get those A's and I have to get my diplomas and I have to do that. And which is, I agree with that. And it's, I instill that on my kids. It's so very important, but we can't forget if we are creative and if that does fuel us, we should always come back to it. You know, however it is, if it's the Sistine Chapel or if it's a children's book, whatever it is, I think that it's okay to be both smart and academic and creative and just to, to be able to have it all. And, you know, I also love the idea that you are starting this initiative during the pandemic because I, I'm a big fan of the Italian contributions to American uh, enterprise and American brands and, and how we eat and what we wear. And there's so many companies that, you know, obviously many different ethnic groups, but I'm, I'm proud of the Italian companies that were started during the great depression and they're still with us. And, brands like you know things that we don't even expect the payday candy bar and uh you know tropicana and planters peanuts and all these things that we touch in our everyday lives that were started by italian americans and economic positions both personally and socially not much different than the worst you could expect today and here they are all these years later as definitive parts of what we think of as americans so there's never the perfect time for uh, the launch of something courageous but there's always the perfect time for courage you know I have a secret. Oh, boy. That Michelle did not tell you. Oh, I love that. Michelle is a very talented musical theater actress. She (laughs) was the star of our junior year high school musical, Little Shop of Horrors. She has a fantastic voice. That should be, is that the next career? (laughs) You know what, Pat? You don't know. You never know. You might find me up on that Broadway stage when the lights come back. Um, You're hysterical. The fact that you even remember that, Pat, is astonishing to me. Um, We're going to have to get you out for when when we have our live events again, (laughs) the next great Italian-American karaoke night. Karaoke night. I'll pass. I I got to go down the record for this. The current problems that the world faces with the ozone layer and the whole of the ozone, Michelle and all the girls I went to high school with are directly responsible. (laughs) 
We were the age of, what was it, Aquanet? They used to have these huge uh, pocketbooks. Uh, okay, so the hair yes. was and like, you gotta see the high school, like a graduation. Picture. So they sold the most hairspray at, I think, the CVS or Walgreens on Ridge Road in North Carolina, <laughs> in the entire country. My pocketbook had a, a huge vat of hairspray. Yes, I did probably contribute to the environmental. It was like um, tractor issues. trails of Aquanet. You couldn't even <laughs> walk in the halls. Back in the day. The good old days. Ah, the good old days. Yes. Well, from the hairspray fogged halls of uh, North Arlington all the way to your own publishing (laughs) house with some wonderful books under your belt and I think a lot of Italian-American spirit at the heart of all of them. I, as usual, am always impressed by the quality and caliber of people that Pat has uh, bumped around with and gotten to know and all these amazing stories that uh, he brings to the table and and now we get to add yours so it's been a real pleasure having you on here and i'm super inspired by and encouraged by what you're doing and i highly encourage everybody to go out and get the books Uh, where can people find the books where can they find uh, the publishing site and how can they get uh, your stuff Uh, absolutely so um you can find me at michellemcavoy.com my married name is mcavoy m-c-a-v-o-y and it's michelle with one l so my website is michellemcavoy.com and my publishing company is littlepresspublishing.com go out and buy the book i say this to every author that we have on any artist that we have on they put their necks out there to be creative, productive members of society to give you a treasure, to give us all a treasure. And we got to support them. And the best way to support them is to take out your credit card, buy the book, buy the book for your kids, for your friend maybe who just had a loss in their family to help them cope with this, to help their children cope with this. Go out and buy all Michelle's books because we can't have this artistic work if we don't show up and support them so even more people can do more creative things, great things for our community. And we inspire and help those people who are in the trenches doing that now. Hopefully everybody will go out and get the books. Follow Michelle. Keep up with what's going on. And Michelle will be really excited to have you back at the next wonderful piece that you produce. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great one. So for everybody out there, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. That you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great See that you're born an Italiano